All right, what's up, Transit Church? Good to see everybody this morning. Welcome back to winter. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't been in Northern Virginia a long time, it's, we have schizophrenic weather. At least that's, that's what I'm learning. Uh, if you're with us for the first time, yeah, we give you greetings. Glad that you are here with us and hope that you are encouraged uh, by our worship today. We're starting a new series, you know, new bumper, new trailer, uh, new music. Um, means a new series, and uh, we're gonna we, we're calling it Ten, as in the Ten Commandments. Um, the Ten Commandments are not uh, familiar words, although I don't know if you know the average person that doesn't go to church could find them in the Bible. But we're going to uh, basically get through the Ten Commandments as a as a church. Uh, theologically, they're called the Decalogue, and uh, they're found in. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17. And then uh, actually, there's a second iteration of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, uh, verses 4 through 21. We're actually going to open our series in the Psalms, though, which might be interesting to some of you. Uh, Grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 1. We're going to read two verses in Psalm 1. And this will, this really is an introduction to the Ten Commandments. We We will get into them in earnest next week and the following weeks. Uh, Today, I just want to whet your appetite on what the Ten Commandments is and what it means to us as New Testament Christians. So Psalm 1, if you don't have a Bible down the center column of seats or a couple Bibles underneath the chair there, you can grab one of those, use it as we're working through the scriptures together today. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you that one. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2. Uh, Read these aloud together with me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it's a new day. Uh, We thank you for your uh, steadfast love and mercy toward us. Lord, we agree with the psalmist that uh, this is the day that you have made, and we rejoice and we're glad in it. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your church, for the reading of your word, for the message of a God who loves us despite us uh, to save us. And God, we pray that even now, under the hearing of your word, that uh, you would draw us to yourself by your spirit, uh, that you would breathe life into us, that we would sense that we have been in your presence today and that you change us by your, uh, by, your, by your message, by the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, there's an author by the name of uh, A.J. Jacobs. He's a TED speaker, uh, actually uh, very well known as an author, very eccentric man, and he wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. This is not a Christian book. Uh, Jacobs is not a Christian man. In fact, he considers himself to be an agnostic Jew. He describes himself as, he says, I'm Jewish like Olive Garden is is an Italian restaurant. So he's that kind of of Jewish man. And uh, he makes a living by um, taking blocks of time, months and seasons and years, and immersing himself into these different areas of life and then he writes a book about it. And in, uh, I don't know, this probably was five or six years ago, he decided that he was going to 
live a complete year in a biblical manner. Okay, so uh, if you can imagine what that looks like. And he actually lived to write about it. Um, he starts out by he starts out by buying a whole bunch of Bibles. I mean, he's this like guy knew nothing about religion at all. He bought about 10, 15 Bibles. He actually read them all. And, uh, and then he started to mingle with people who had faith, of, of, of varying faiths. Uh, and here's one interesting thing that he found out. He found that, you know, people stereotype Christians. Um, they try to put us in one box. And he says, you can't figure these Christians out because they're like all over the map. And like they're just as, they're just as varied as the, the waters over the ocean. Um, so that was an interesting thing that he said. But this was, he, then he gets into his project and he, he writes down all the commands in the Bible. Every rule, every law that suggests anything that we're supposed to do, he comes up with over 700 rules or commands of things the Bible is telling you to do, and then he sets out to do them. And you can imagine the outcome is pretty hilarious. Here's some, here's some things that he did. Uh, firstly, he, he found in Leviticus that a man should leave the edges of his beard unshaven. So he, this guy stops shaving and ends up with this massive beard that looks kind of like that. Check him out. That's crazy. Um, he stops wearing clothes made of any mixed fibers. So he puts on his, his cotton white man dress and walks around in that. He gets a, a, a ten-string harp. He experimented with being a shepherd. Uh, he refused to shake hands with any woman who might be ceremonial unclean. I'm not sure what criteria he used <laughs> to determine that that was going on. He even refused to sit on any seat in, in his house that his wife had sat on when she was going through her menstrual cycle. Can you imagine? This probably drove her crazy. Um, and this, this is actually one of my favorites. He tried to fling tiny pebbles at people without them noticing it in order to stone adulterers. Um, so here's a summary. I mean, you see, I haven't read the book, but I, I looked at this 18-minute TED, TED video. You should go and just listen to him talk. Funny guy. Um, here's a summary of his year. He says, no one can keep the commandments. Did you hear that? He said, no one can keep the commandments. And then he, then Aja adds, uh, so, so you got to pick and choose. Um, AJ's experiment reveals how most of us feel about the commandments. They're restrictive. It's like God is putting me in a cage and I can't get out. He has me in a box and, um, and he's putting me there on purpose with all these rules that are, that are tying me down. Um, and here's what we do, because most of us don't like to be restricted. Uh, we either will do like AJ and we'll pick and choose. I'm like, I'll do that one, but I ain't going to do that one. I'll do that one, but I don't even know if I can do that one. Or we totally dismiss God and what he's telling us all together. Uh, today we're starting a series in the Ten Commandments, and I hope that we would firstly, I, actually I want you to come to the same conclusion that AJ came to, that you actually cannot do the Ten Commandments. But I don't want you to come to his the way he added on is like, I got to pick and choose. Actually, what God wants you to come to the, the conclusion with the Ten Commandments is that you need help. You need divine help to be able to fulfill what God has actually asked you to do and what he commands you to do 
in the Bible. Uh, more importantly, much like the psalmist, I want us to take a, a really the exact opposite perspective on the Ten Commandments. I don't want them to. to uh, I don't want us to come away feeling that they're restrictive or that God is putting me in a cage that I can't get out of. But more, more so, um, I want us to come away with, with knowing that God's commands and the things that He's telling us to do. Uh, are, are to my good, and they're to give me delight, that, that I might take what God has said to me from his own heart and believe that he wants me to get delight out of it. Um, and that really is what the psalmist conveys to us. Psalm 1, uh, the psalmist is telling us that there is a way that we can delight in all the things that God is telling us to do, that we can delight in God's law, and he's he's sharing the journey of a he's sharing the story of a man on a journey, and the man very simply decides to do some things and decides not to do some things because he knows that in the journey of my life there's a beginning and there's an end, and the things that I do along that journey are going to uh, to get me to that end uh, depending on how faithful I am to it. And so in verse one he says, "Blessed is the man who walks not." in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. It's an interesting, uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time in this psalm, all right? So uh, two years ago, we did a, uh, a sermon series covering uh, the, the entire summer, several psalms, um, and we started out with this one. And so this is a very interesting psalm to, to get into, but here's what he's saying. He's like, there's a slippery slope of how we as people can get into the wrong stuff. It's like first we're just walking by and we're pretending like, oh, wow, that looks interesting. And then he says, uh, we stand amongst those things that are interesting. And before we know it, we're sitting down doing the very thing that we have said that we shouldn't do and the thing that we know we shouldn't do. And that really is how, how sin happens in our life. It's not happenstance. It doesn't just happen upon us. We do it very deliberately. It's kind of subtle. The point that I think that he's making in, in relation to where we're going today is, is that life, life is a journey. It has a beginning and an end. All of our, our lives are in the pursuit of something towards that end. And so it's important how you walk this life out to get to that end. And specifically what he says is the man doesn't do certain things, but he does do others. What does he do? Verse 2, he says his delight, he puts his delight in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What's he doing? He's meditating and delighting in the law. Uh, the psalmist is talking about the Torah, the five books of Moses, but in, 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 the, in the, larger grand, the larger grand scheme idea of what he's trying to contray, uh, portray to us, he says he's delighting in all of God's instructions. That means everything that God has taught, all the guidance that he's given, anything that's come out of God's mouth in terms of giving us light to live in this life, he says, I'm, I want to heed that. I also want it to be my delight. So when the psalmist mentions the law, what the, the writer is doing is he's conveying to us that God has a way. Not just a way, God has a perfect way that anyone that wants to live a pleasing life to God, you you have to follow that way. That way is conveyed in God's law. Uh, we can get tripped up when we think about the law because there's a lot of it. I mean, A.J. Jacobs came up with 700 commands of things that God is telling us to do. Um, 
When we hear the word law or commandments in the Old Testament in particular, it's one of three things that it's talking about. So there, there's really a, a threefold uh, definition of the law in the Old Testament. And the first part of that definition is the civil law. When you think civil law, think those rules in a judicial system that, that just helps us um, all live together um, so that we're not killing each other and, and, and getting on top of each other. Uh, for Israel, those were the laws that ordered their life as, as a society. It helped them keep the peace of the land. But the second iteration of laws were called the, the ceremonial laws. And these really set Israel apart um, from all the other pagan nations around them because it involved things like temple worship and observance of feasts and festivals, sacrifices, offerings, dietary restrictions, circumcision, fasting, prayer, giving of alms. There's not any nation on earth as a nation that's commanded to do the things that Israel was commanded to do in the Bible. Um, Here's the important thing about the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law prefigured the coming of Jesus Christ. And so when you see the temple and the worship, the, the sacrifices, the priests, and all those things that, um, that happened in the Old Testament in regards to how they worshiped God, all of those things, from the, the mediatorial role of the priest standing between God and his people, spilling the blood of the sacrifice, Jesus, is, Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, and fulfills those roles, and he's still serving as our mediator at the right hand of God today. So the ceremonial law prefigured Christ. Uh, thirdly was the moral law, and the moral law is the Ten Commandments. Um, the moral law set Israel apart uh, by their ethic. What's an ethic? It's, it's a principle, it's a value by which you live life. So the moral law, more than anything, it reveals the character of God. A character of, that, that doesn't change. And so when it comes to the law, both the civil and the ceremonial laws of Israel are no longer uh, applicable to New Testament Christians. However, the moral law is. Uh, here's why. Uh, when Jesus comes, he, uh, he enters us into a, a new covenant. Basically, God is saying, my, my main program isn't going to be Israel and it's ceremonial sacrifices anymore, but it's going to be the church. Um, if you think about it, Israel is a monotheistic, one God, theocratic, God is, God is our king kind of a nation. And even in America, you know, with, with uh, what's, on the back of, what's on the back of our money? In God we trust? I mean, can we really say that, our, that in God, can we really say that about our country anymore? We live in a society that... Um, that by the Constitution, we're free to worship as we please, but you won't get put in jail if you worship a God or worship God or worship no God. Okay, We're, we're a pluralistic society where you can do anything you want. So uh, we're not like Israel. And for and the fact of the matter, um, we're, we're definitely not theocratic nor, nor monotheistic in our, in our country. Um, but here's what, here's what makes us know that the moral law doesn't go away. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but the law will never pass away. And he's speaking here of the moral law. And so the moral law applies to New Testament Christians. 
And the, 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 the fact of the matter is, if we're going to experience all that God has for us, it wouldn't make sense for us to blow off the very thing that he's telling us to do. So really, in the rest of uh, my talk here today, I want to give you three guiding points. Actually, I'm going to give you two guiding points and a, and a question, a reflective question to think about. Um, guiding points that we need to consider uh, as we look at the Ten Commandments. And here's the first one. God's purpose in the beginning of time is his same purpose at the end. God's purpose in the beginning of time is the same purpose at the end. And what I'm saying here is that God is consistent. If you ever consider the, the, how the Bible begins, the first two chapters of Genesis, you have the creation, um, God laying out uh, the world and all that would inhabit it. And we get to this very important verse in Genesis 2.24. It's a verse that pastors love to read at weddings. And, and this is what we say. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And, you know, we make, a, we make much of that verse in regards to what it means for a marriage relationship. But this is what this verse really is, is talking about. It's giving us a description of an environment where there, there's nothing between God and his creation, God and man. There's nothing between the, the man and the woman that, but, but complete harmony, right? That's what God is showing us in the beginning as his design for his world. Fast forward all the way to the end of your Bible, Revelations chapter 21 and 22, and you really have the same thing. You have an environment where there's harmony throughout all the, the all that exists. There's no separation between God and his creation. There's nothing between a man and a woman that's arbitrary. There's nothing between God and us. It's a perfect environment. In fact, it's so perfect that God describes it with the, the but calling it heaven. And that's God's design. Now, what we have to contend with is all the stuff that happens in the middle. From Genesis chapter 1 and 2, all the way to Revelation uh, chapters 21 and 22. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world. Uh, and this is what happens when sin enters the world. Uh, you and I and people like us decide that we're going to live independently of God. God is, is, is offering us in, in, the, in his perfect creation to provide for us and to protect us. And he offers us salvation through himself and when sin comes into the world, basically we reject that and say, you know, God, I don't want your salvation. I'll save myself. And this, of course, is the picture of sin. And God responds to our sin by delivering Israel from bondage. And that really is the story of the, the book of Exodus. And so in Old Testament book of Exodus, Israel finds themselves in slavery in Egypt and God has to deliver them. You guys know the story, right? God creates the world, Adam and Eve sin, they get kicked out of Eden. 400 years later, God um, sets the ball rolling on a plan of redemption. He calls a man named Abraham, says, Abraham, leave your father, your mother, all your kin, and go to a land I'm going to show you. Where does he take him to? Takes him to Canaan, modern day Israel. God, says, God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. 
And so Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has a whole bunch of kids. There's a famine. They go to Egypt, and they're in Egypt for a long time. And at some point, they become slaves. And so they're slaves for over 400 years. And that's the point where God hears their cry. We're being abused and persecuted by Egyptians. Oh, I thought that we were special to you. I thought you had a blessing to Abraham. Israel finds themselves in slavery in Egypt, and God has to deliver them. But it's no different than what Jesus does for us in the New Testament. Jesus comes and delivers people like us from, from sin. What, what is our sin? We're in bondage basically to ourselves. In the Old Testament, God chooses Israel. He makes a covenant with them to be their God and to make them his people. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and promises to build his church with broken, messed up people. He forms a community and gives us a blessed life. In the Old Testament, God's blessing looked like kings and lineage and land. In fact, he describes this land as a land flowing with milk and honey. Isn't that, that's a very interesting description. I mean, I mean what would you, how would you describe a land flowing with milk and honey? In the New Testament, Jesus says this, John 10, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. In the Old Testament, God gives Abraham the promise he'd be, a, he'd be blessed to be a blessing to other nations. Israel was to be a missionary to all the pagan nations so that they would know who God is and how he required them to worship. And in the New Testament, Jesus does that. He has that same purpose for his church, that we would be missionaries to the world around us. And so really, I, I, I rehearse all that. That's, that's like 80% of your Bible right there that I just talked about. So here's the point. God has been doing the same stuff throughout all of human history. God is the same. He's not a mean God with rules in the Old Testament that turns nice through Jesus in the New Testament. He's the same Trinitarian God calling people to himself, delivering us from sin, forming a community, and blessing us to be a blessing to other people. This is God's program. This is his design for his world. And so the question that we should ask, definitely as Christians, is, all right, so that sounds all right. I, I think I want to be a part of that. How do I? Here's the second point, the second guiding point in regards to the Ten Commandments. To understand God, you have to understand God's law. To have any part of God, you have to understand what he has said to us in his law. Said differently, when you participate in God's kingdom under God's law, you have to begin to understand his purpose for his world. And, and here's the thing that helps us understand God's purposes for his world, and it's one word, C word, covenant. We have to understand uh, God's heart through covenant. Covenant uh, is not a hard word for us. Most of you have entered covenants in your lifetime. Those of you that, that own a home, that have entered into any long-term contract that's binding, in a sense, you are in a covenant. Those of you that are married, have been married, basically entered into a covenant. Two or more people uh, agreeing, binding themselves together under the, the auspices of certain um, understood 
things that you're going to agree on, and when you add God to the mix, he says it's, it's eternal. And so one simple way to think of a covenant is it's the rules by which God relates to us. A covenant describes how we relate to other people, and that's really the same thing in relation to God. Uh, when we think of this in terms of God, God is not giving us arbitrary rules. He's giving us very specific things that he wants us to do. In fact, in the, uh, the Old Testament, uh, one example is uh, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. You guys know this if you've read your Old Testament as the cursing and blessing chapters in the Bible. Uh, these chapters express curses when we disobey God's laws and blessings when we obey God's laws. A lot of times we think that a curse is when we say evil words to someone in hopes that they're going to come true. Actually, the Bible doesn't classify that as a, as a curse. That's just being mean. Uh, here's what a curse is. A curse is the loss of relationship. This is how God defines curse. When Cain killed Abel in Genesis chapter 4, God, uh, Adam and Eve were all, had already been kicked out of Eden, but they were still within the confines of the presence of God. And we're told that Cain was made to go further east of Eden. And um, Cain lamented that because as he went further east out of Eden, it was symbolic of him being kicked out of God's presence. What's the greatest curse that can come on you in your life? It's to, it's to be separated from God. It's to be out of God's presence. And so a curse is loss of relationship for lack of faithfulness to God's covenant. But here's a blessing. Blessing, is, blessing describes the intimacy of relationship for your faithfulness to God's covenant. And so here, here's the transaction that God is making. You obey and you get blessed. You disobey and you get cursed. And obviously that does sound transactional, and it is meant to be, but you, you, you have to go one step further. At the heart of God's law is relationship. Keeping the law is about getting in to relationship with God. He's inviting us into this. And you parents, you, I mean, you know what this is like. It's like, um, it's like the difference between uh, you fussing at your kids and telling them, I want you to do this, 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 and this, um, or you conniving them and say, hey, if you do this, we're going to go to Sweet Frog. I mean, and it's, you know, if it's me, I, I like, I'm going to tell my kids to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to bribe them and say, let's go to Sweet Frog. You do this, I'll go to Sweet Frog. Uh, but what does a parent want them to do? You want your kid to obey you um, out of relationship, right? It's, it's not a have to, it's a get to, uh, because you know the relationship is right when your kid rightly obeys you out of a heart of wanting the relationship to, to, to be like this and not to be severed. It's the same thing with God. And so God is inviting us into relationship. And, and here's the thing. This is the caution that I would give you in regards to the Ten Commandments. If you hear all the rules that God has given you, like A.J. Jacobs, he, he categorized all the rules that God was giving him, but he paid no attention to the relationship that God was inviting him into. If you do that, you'll feel like you're getting crushed. You cannot, you cannot fulfill the Ten Commandments without being in relationship. You need God's help. 
Here's the deal about the Ten Commandments. They reveal God's character. They, they reveal who God is from a heart level, as if God had a heart. But more importantly, the Ten Commandments were meant to reveal your heart. So here's, let's, let's dive, not just, we're not going to dive too deep, but I'm going to talk a little bit about the Ten Commandments because we are giving an introduction to that. So to do that, we've got to talk about the book of Exodus. Um, the whole book of Exodus is geared toward this idea that people might know who God is. Don't you hate it when the movies get this wrong? I mean, Exodus is about us knowing who God is, of him presenting himself to us. And, of course, you got the, it's not a new movie anymore, but it's the, the newer of the Hollywood movies made on Exodus, Gods and Kings. you got Christian Bale um, playing, playing Moses. And I hate it when, the, when Hollywood makes God to be some uh, disassociated divine being that winds the world up and then just says, go do whatever you want. Or like in Exodus, Gods and Kings, God comes to some, you know, some 10-year-old angry little child that's, that's, that's um, you know, he's vengeful, venge, venge, what's it? He's trying to get vengeance back on, on Egypt and you know, every time he's communicating with Moses, he's like, it's like he's going to kill the dude. I didn't understand that. And so uh, back to our story of Egypt. Um, after 400 years of slavery, God sends uh, a deliverer. He raises up a, a young kid, uh, a Hebrew kid named Moses. He causes him to be brought up in the house of Pharaoh. And so he has the, the education of an Egyptian and the affluence of of the king of Egypt. And at some point, Moses realized, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm, I'm actually a Hebrew. And he identifies with his own people. God speaks to him in a burning bush, Exodus 3, and lets Moses know, you're the guy I've chosen to deliver my people out of slavery and to bring them into the land that I would show you. And then, basically, God sends all these plagues hell and doom on, on, on Egypt. He comes to the final plague. God smites the, the firstborn child of, of all those in Egypt. He allows the Israelites to slaughter a lamb, put that blood over the door, and the death angel passes over those who, have, who are behind that blood. Uh, you have the miracle of, of the Israelites walking through the Red Sea. They get to the other side, and God brings them to Mount Sinai. And, and then, I mean, some interesting things happen. This is, uh, I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 19. This is not going to be on the screen. So, uh, so check this out. Starting at verse 3. The Lord called out to him, called out to Moses, uh, out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Skipping down to verse 6, verse 8. And so all the people responded back to Moses, and they, together they said, all that the Lord has said and spoken to us, we will do. And Moses reported the words to the people, to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also be with you. And so Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. 
The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. So God is, God is speaking to Moses to tell the people, hey, I'm getting ready to show myself to the people. Then verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Verse 19, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder as Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. This is a dramatic scene, I, and um, I have a vivid imagination, and, and so these people are like scared out of their you-know-what. Why is that? Because God is showing up, and God is not showing up like the President of the United States shows up and his entourage or in Air Force One, and he comes out on the red carpet, salutes the Marine, and you know all is hunky-dory. God is showing up with like accoutrements, the accoutrements of nature. Um, first of all, Moses is coming down from a mountain. The whole mountain is covered with smoke, and there's lightning, and there's fire, and there's trumpet blasts, and all this stuff is going on. And I didn't read the part where God said, all right, I'm God. Don't come too close. Because if you, if, you, if you even put your pinky toe too close to the mountain, I'm going to smite you, and you're, you'll be incinerated just, just from coming too close to me. And so this is what's happening. God is introducing himself to the people that he's called to himself, and he does it in a dramatic fashion. And so what's going to happen next is God is actually going to give them the Ten Commandments from, from this um, this introduction of himself. And before he does that, he reflects on his own character with all the stuff that's going on. He's showing them basically his character, his holiness, his majesty, his perfection, his awesomeness. And, and so when we think about the commandments, really the commandments are a response to all that we think and know about who God is. In a sense, everything that we do as a Christian is a response to who God is. When you come to worship, that's a response of you reverencing God for who he is. When you repent, that's you responding to the majesty of God. God is God and we're not. God is creator. I'm created. What he said matters. What I think does not. I'm going to turn from my ways of thinking that life is supposed to work and, uh, and assume what God says. When we, uh, when we believe, we are responding to the promises of God, that God has promised me this, and he's a God who doesn't lie, and he's going to actually fulfill everything that he has promised to me. Even when we do evangelism and ministry of any kind, it's a response to what God has declared that he wants to do in his world. And the crazy thing is that he uses people like you and me to do it. All of our Christian lives are a response to God. And this is especially true when we think about the Ten Commandments. Um, obedience to these commandments is a way of communing with, of knowing, and worshiping God. And it's almost like the psalmist says, 
The psalmist says, if you love God, if you desire to know him, to be with him and to be like him, this is what you do. You delight in God's law. All right, so let's go a little bit deeper. You guys ready to hear some Ten Commandments? I don't think you are. All right, so here's the deal about the Ten Commandments. I said this once before. The Ten Commandments reveal God's character, but they're more so to reveal your own heart. That's what God is drawing out. He's drawing out, he's showing you who he is, but he's also showing you who you are from the inside out. Um, If we're honest, when we look at these Ten Commandments, uh, one of the first things that we see is we desire a lot of things that go against what God says he's about. I mean, that's, I'm prop, I'm, I'm preempting you. I'm going to like list all these commandments and your heart's going to like seize up on you when I explain what, what God means by what he says. And here's the thing. If, if these commandments reflect the beauty of God, then, then oftentimes, even if we don't say it, we, we actually want the opposite of that. If these commands reflect the righteousness of God, then, then our hearts characterized by wanting wrong. If the commandments reflect godliness, then really what we desire oftentimes is godlessness. And I, I would say in many of our lives, we're practical atheists. We say that we believe something with our heads, but our hearts and the way we live it out is far from it. And it's if God were dead. That sounds strong, but it's right. It's right of me, and it's probably right of you. Here's the first commandment. Have no other God before me. We're going to tackle this next week. Can you say, I've never put anything before God in my life. I've never loved or trusted or obeyed anything more than God. God and God alone has always been preeminent in my thoughts, affections, and my actions. Even when I'm late to church and I need a cup of coffee before I get in the worship room and all the coffee is gone. Even when I get to church and I'm late and the kids ministry line is like out the door and I just want to hear Abigail sing one song. Second commandment, don't make for yourself a carved image. There's, a, there's varying um, interpretations of this one, uh, but basically it says God is spirit. We're supposed to worship him in, in, him in spirit and in truth. He has no body. And so we're not supposed to come up with an image of what God looks like, which would say, uh, some would say, even if in kids ministry, if we have a picture that portrays what Jesus looks like, or if we make a movie that shows, has an actor um, sort of depicting Jesus, then we've violated this command. We'll talk about that in two weeks. The third commandment is don't take the name of God in vain, which says, I've always held the name of God, which signifies his character in highest respect, invoking his name only with thoughtfulness and reverence. I've never, ever used God's name as a swear word. Never. I've never been lethargic or apathetic during worship. I've never desecrated God's name by calling himself, calling myself his follower, but not responding, uh, but not representing him well. The way I talk, act, spend my money, drive, give honor to God, whose name I attach to my life, and whose bumper sticker I display on the back of my car. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. This says, I always, whether with my time or with my money, I always set aside part of it just to worship 
and honor God. Fifth commandment is honor your parents. Which says, I've always been submissive to my parents and other authorities. I've always given them honor and willing obedience, whether they were not watching uh, my parents, my teachers, traffic cops, the IRS, or get this one, even my president. The sixth commandment, don't kill. And most of y'all thinking, finally one of them that I can... (laughs) It's like, yes, I can say I've never killed anybody. All right. I've never had a murderous thought about, about anyone. I've never had hateful thoughts or have taken the slightest pleasure in seeing harm done to any other human being, not my boss, not my in-laws, not even my enemies. The second commandment, do not commit adultery. How many of you can say I've never had an intimate sexual relationship with someone that's not my spouse? Furthermore, I've never fantasized about sex with someone I'm not married to. The Eighth Commandment, do not steal. Would you say, I've never taken anything that doesn't belong to me? I've never taken credit that didn't belong to me. I've never cheated in school. I've never cheated on my taxes. I haven't downloaded any illegal music. I never took a pen that didn't belong to me. I've never wasted my company's time surfing the internet, Twittering, or Facebooking. I'm always willing to take only what I've earned. How's that working out for you? (laughs) Try this one on for size. Do not lie. Do I even need to explain that one? (laughs) The 10th commandment, do not covet. This says, yes, I've always completely, I'm always completely satisfied with my station in life. I've never, I've never been greedy for my abilities, the looks, the position, or the possessions of other people. When someone else gets a blessing I don't have, I'm not jealous. I rejoice with them. I've never not once complained about what God has provided for me. I've always just trusted him and been satisfied with what he's given me. Now, here's here's what our heart wants to do. We want to say, you know what? But but I'm good. I'm actually a good person. And here's what God would say in response. He says, yes, you are good. You definitely are good. But you're also Uh, a blaspheming, lying, murderous, disrespectful, greedy, adultering, idol worshiper. That's how God responds to us in the Ten Commandments. Here's the reality. The Ten Commandments reflect the the character of God, the face of God. It's who he is. God doesn't give us laws. It doesn't reflect who he is. And so uh, a holy God um, cannot and will not look on impurity. He refuses to do that. And and here's what the Ten Commandments are supposed to bring us into. It's supposed to bring us into this this idea that we need God. Look at how the Israelites responded to God after he gave them the Ten Commandments. I'm going to fast forward to Exodus 20, verses, uh, verses 18. Pretend like you're an Israelite and you had just heard God himself giving these Ten Commandments like a trumpet blasting over a loudspeaker. And this is our response. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and Moses said, and said to Moses, you speak to us, Moses, and we'll listen. But don't let this God speak to us lest we die. I mean, they was like, I don't want any of that God. I mean, he's too scary. 
they were exposed to the awesome presence of God and they were brought to the point of fear. More importantly, they realized how wicked they were. Um, Isaiah, in his, in, his, uh, in his book in the Old Testament, uh, in chapter 6, Isaiah, he's being called of God, and he comes to this point where he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's in the presence of God. There's angels worshiping seraphim. Isaiah drops to his knees. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, I'm a man that's lost. Woe is me, he says. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And what he's, con- what he's conveying to us is God is so holy that he can't even contend with sin. The prophet Habakkuk had the same experience in Habakkuk 1.13. He says, God is of such purity that he cannot even look at evil. It would be like us. I mean, this is the picture. We're a piece of paper just getting close to the sun, and uh, the, the imperfections in us would get incinerated, uh, juxtaposed to the, the perfection of God. And this really is the picture that God is giving us uh, of the presence of sin in the presence of a holy God. We're, we're poisoned by sin. Sin is, um, sin is present in almost every thought that we have. Sin saturates the core of our being. And those aren't popular words to say that. I know that, but it reflects who we are. And the only rightful punishment for a holy God is, is separation. It's, it's the curse of, of separation from God, which in the Bible would be a place called hell. Hell is what it is because sin is what it is. Um, and that's, that's why we have the law. That's why God gives us to law, the law to help us see who he is, but also to show our heart and remind us, to inform us that we need his help. And so the, those are the two guiding points. And here's the question that we need to reflect on. What does this mean for me? What does, what does who God is and the things that he tells me about himself reflected in the Ten Commandments, mean for me. Let me give you some New Testament scripture. Galatians 3.24. The law was a tutor. Uh, A tutor means a a nanny or a private instructor. So the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Paul said it like this in Romans 3.21-24. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by this grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's Paul doing here? He's interpreting the law for the New Testament Christian. He says, there is a way to be righteous apart from the law. And, and, and what is that way? It's by receiving this gift that God gives us. What is righteousness? Righteousness is being right in God's eyes. It's as if God says, all right, you got to do all this. You got to fulfill all these Ten Commandments. And, and he says, this is the way you do it. And you, you got your ear close because you want to know what that way is. And he says, here it is. You got to trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, because Jesus was perfect, and in every way, he lived the life that you lived, but he did it perfectly, and he went to a cross, died in your place for your sin, and he gives you a gift. He declares you 
in right standing with God. It's as if you were able to fulfill all these Ten Commandments, but you're not really. And it's not that God has given you a free pass. This is what he does. He takes the punishment that you're due because of your sin. Remember, it's holy God, sinful people, and, and God would incinerate us the, the, if we got close to him with our sin. That's why, the, that's why in the Old Testament, Israel had all those sacrifices and the temple worship and the priests who stood between God and man. And so Paul is saying, here's a way for you to be in right relationship with God. Here's a way for God to, God to declare you as having fulfilled all the commands, all seven, 700 plus of them in the Bible, is you have faith in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus actually fulfilled all those commands. God doesn't give you a free pass. He takes all the punishment that you should get, and he puts it on Jesus. And what happens to Jesus? Jesus dies on a cross in your place. That's what we just um, discovered. That's what we just celebrated um, during Easter and Good Friday. Jesus suffered the full fury of God's wrath in our place. All the fury of God's holiness and wrath was poured into Jesus. Someone described it like this. Um, say you're standing in front of a, a dam. The dam is two miles high, one mile deep, and at some point it's just like gushing over. And you see the water coming, and it's coming, and it's coming, and when it hits you, it's going to take you out. It's going to end your life. But instead, somehow, this big hole opens up and it swallows all that water so not a drop touches you. That's what that's what justification by faith through Jesus is. It's Jesus is drinking the dreg of God's wrath to its drop. He turns the cup over and he stretches out his arms and he says, it is finished. What's finished? God, he's swallowed up God's wrath that you're owed because of your sin. Righteousness is a gift. It's God gifting you as if you had fulfilled the Ten Commandments, which you absolutely can't. See, the law is like this set of railroad tracks. The tracks have no power to make the train do anything. It can't make the train go from point A to point B. The law never gives any power to do what it commands. Only the gospel has the power. It's as if the gospel is moving the train of your life to change your heart, to point you to the light of Christ. And so I never answered the question, what does this mean for me? It, it simply means you need a Savior. That's all it means. It means you need a Savior. The Ten Commandments, the purpose of the law, is to point you to Jesus. It's to bring you to the point where you realize you can't be your own savior. A.J. Jacobs was absolutely right. You cannot keep the law. But here's what I would encourage you. Instead of just picking and choosing, you just need to help. You need help meeting the, the demands of the law. And God is the one that gives you that help. He gives you that help through Jesus. The law pushes us to Jesus. And that really is what we're going to uncover in this series, is that the law... The intent of the law is to give us a picture of the gospel. The gospel is what the Old Testament points to 
It's what the New Testament looks back on, the grace of God to love us despite us. It's the apex of, it's the central point of all that we know and believe as Christians. The Ten Commandments point you, point us to the gospel. The last thing I would tell you is the sequence is important. The sequence of how God gives us the Ten Commandments is very important. If you'll notice, God had already delivered Israel out of, out of the bondage of Egypt before he gave them the Ten Commandments. And what that message says to us is that God invites us to obey, not because he's going to save us, but to obey because he's saved us. You understand that? You understand the difference? There really are two reasons why people obey the Ten Commandments. Some obey because you want to be accepted. They feel like, you know what, I got to do all this so that God will love me. He'll favor me so I can get to heaven. But another way of looking at it is simply this. Because I know God has already accepted me, I'm going to obey those things that he's told me to do. Go back to the example of the, of the child and the parent. A, a parent, you want your child to obey because they know they're loved. And they know that the, the things that you tell them to do, Johnny, don't do this. Johnny, do that, are for their good. It's coming out of a, a good heart for the care and provision of your child. God thinks no differently toward us. You know, every religion in the world, except for Christianity, teaches you that if you obey enough, you'll be accepted. The Bible reverses that. It says, fundamentally, that obedience is not in order to be accepted, but because you've been accepted. God loves you because he loves you. You're accepted and you're invited to obey him out of the acceptance that he's already given you. You don't have to work for it. You just simply have to believe. Believe in what? Believe in Jesus. God is not just after your obedience. This is my last, my last concluding thought. He's after a new kind of obedience. He's after an obedience that comes from love and delight in God, the kind of delight that, like the psalmist, we not only delight in God's law, but we desire to meditate it, meditate on it day and night. Let's pray. Lord, life sometimes feels like it's a, a list of rules for us that we're always told what to do. And really, as Americans, as, as people in general, we buck up against that. We don't want to be told what to do. I pray that we wouldn't do that with your word. I pray that you would impress upon us, um, not just in the Ten Commandments, but in uh, just in the word in general. God, that you have our best intentions at heart, that you uh, command us what to do out of a heart that wants to protect and provide and guide and shepherd us. That we are to you like children and you invite us uh, to receive you as our God. The picture of scripture is of a, a shepherd leading sheep, of a father with his children. So Lord, help us to see that your commands are good, that when we delight in them, they give us life, that you invite us to obey them, not that we get, we'll get a reward from that, but the reward is you love us that you want to be in relation to us, in relationship with us. Help us to see that your commands lead us to Jesus. We pray that in his name.